names, and some details have been changed in these stories to maintain confidentiality. Welcome to Back from the Abyss, a place for stories of hope and healing. I'm Dr. Craig Heacock, your host and resident psychiatrist. Now, if you didn't yet listen to the previous episode, it's worth stopping right here and listening to it first, as this episode is number two of a two-part exploration of EMDR. In the first episode of Back from the Abyss, I mentioned my darkest time early in my career after my third patient suicide. One small but crucial part of my healing was EMDR. I found out about Josh's death the way I typically find out about suicides, by way of a coroner's report in my mailbox. I frantically looked for a date and means of death, and there it was. He had died of an overdose just hours after I had seen him in my office. In those first few years after residency, I believed that if I worked hard enough, if I was careful and available enough, I could keep my patients from dying. Saying that today seems silly and even kind of deluded, but I think I really did believe that. After Josh's death, I plunged into overdrive, working even harder, checking in obsessively with my suicidal patients, opening the paper every morning and turning right to the obituaries, holding my breath as I checked to see if any of the black and white photos was one of my patients. Only after my second EMDR session did I realize how radically Josh's suicide had altered the way I perceived the world. I was marinated in fear, but this had become my new normal. I was biking to work early one morning, the day after my second EMDR session, when all of a sudden, all of reality, everything around me, the bike path, the trees, the sky, the grassy fields stretching out from both sides of me, everything just blinked off. Then it came back online in less than a moment. I slammed on my brakes, wondering what had just happened. Totally stunned, I looked around, trying to figure out if I just had some kind of seizure or flashback or maybe even a mystical experience. Everything around me, every little piece of reality, had somehow changed. The world felt okay, safe, even peaceful. And only then did I realize that everything around me had not felt okay up till that very moment. All of my reality had been drenched in threat. Before MDR, I couldn't talk about Josh's death without falling apart into a kind of weeping paralysis. After EMDR, I could talk about his death with sadness, but without the fight-flight response without the looming thread of more deaths, more suicides, more awfulness lurking around every corner. Today, we have our second EMDR story. In the previous episode, Sophie described her impressive recovery from a horrific single-event trauma. Today's story also highlights the healing power of EMDR, but Kate's healing process was much, much longer, as her traumas were so pervasive and profound and started very early in her life right around the time her father fell hard into methamphetamine addiction. I was probably five and a half, six, the first time I witnessed domestic violence. So that was definitely a turning point kind of in my life and in our family's life as well. Um, I remember coming down the hall, this trailer we had didn't have like doors in the hall. And um, my dad, he's what he was six, one, six, two ish, big big guy my mom's five foot you know 95 pounds just this little little lady and I'm coming down the hall there's my mom and she's held up against the wall with my dad's forearm and he's lifted her off the ground 
so holding her up against the wall and I just kind of remember looking and like what is happening what is this like what is going on um I'd never that I remembered witnessed anything like that kind of scary and just confusing over you know who is what is this person doing this is these are my parents these are the people that love each other right then so that was definitely the first um incident that I remember My grandfather, so my dad's dad, he's my papa, and I was very close to him growing up. Um, He had always wanted a daughter, and he only had boys, and so I was the first granddaughter, and he was pretty taken with me. So we had a pretty decent relationship, and I really loved him a lot. And he had given me uh, $100 to go buy my first pair of cowboy boots. So I was super excited. You know, my mom, we went to, we had to drive an hour into the town so that we could go over and we went shopping and we had a really good day together and I just remember we came home and we were pulling up we had pulled down this dirt driveway and we were pulling up to the house and pulling up to the back and the shower curtain was sticking out of the bathroom window so it's like what okay like something happened right so she gets out and I don't remember if we went in together or if she went in first, but we walked into our house and it was destroyed. The TV broken, the chairs broken. You know, my mom had furniture from her parents, things from her parents that were special, I believe, and they were busted apart. But the majority of the windows were busted in the house with the exception of my bedroom and my brother's bedroom. So um, that was a pretty intense moment you know like what happened I'm nine years old like why why is my house destroyed like but she knew um she knew I mean and deep down I knew Mm. I mean I knew because there had been this wasn't you know this was just one of the bigger things there has been previous smaller episodes and incidents up to this um but I think it was at that moment that she My mom realized, you know, this is probably, this is the time to kind of like try and figure out what are we going to do. And, and she tried, she tried to leave, um, multiple times and, um, he would find us. So we would be places sleeping and wake up and he's over us. He's there in the room. There's no place to hide. There was no place to hide. Mm -hmm. So she goes back because he made promises. I'm changing. I'm getting clean. Things will be better. And we moved into this rental house in a town about 15, probably 15, 20 minutes away. But we were in a small town and we had stores and things and people near us. And things just continued to escalate and get worse. And the meth use. Um, At one point, he removed the tires from our car and put it on cinder blocks in the front yard. And he would, um, he would gather us all up and take us out and we would sit in the car for hours and just sit. I, I felt in danger for all of us. I felt like 
I think at that point, I just felt like at any point we were all going to die, that it was just imminent. It would happen at some point. It was just a matter of when is he going to lose it or when, when is, you know, what is going to set him off? Because there had already been, there had already been threats. He, um, he threatened my mom quite often with, with many horrible, horrible things that he would, you know, do to her. And, and, um, it just, I, I mean, I saw all of this, I felt all of this and that's probably around the time that I stopped sleeping, that sleeping became a big issue. So nine and a half, 10, because if I fell asleep, I wouldn't be awake to hear anything, right? I wouldn't be awake to go in to make sure my mom was okay or to kind of control the situation. So I always felt like if I was there, if I was around, I could control the situation. I could help protect her and protect us. And that's not true. I mean, you were just a little girl. I was a little girl. Yeah. I remember we drove to a payphone to call my uncle, um, my dad's older brother, so that he could potentially come down and talk some sense into him. I, I, I don't really know what everybody's thoughts were at this time. I, it's almost appalling to look back and think, why were we not in a, in a being hidden away like completely? So we're sitting at this payphone, and in the front seat, my grandmother is in the front seat, and my mom is in the, the middle seat, and my dad in the passenger seat, and I'm in the back seat. And my, my grandmother is on the phone and we're just sitting there. And all of a sudden he just like wraps his arm around my mom's neck and starts choking her in the car. And I'm just like, what is, what is this? And my reaction of course is to react. So I start attacking him, biting and hitting and clawing and doing what I could to try and make this stop. And eventually he let go and then we went about our business like that was that, you know, like it was normal, like this kind of stuff happens. Kate and her mother fled the state at one point to escape her father's chaos and violence, but at a terrible price. Kate's older brother stayed behind to appease her father and essentially to try to care for him. So my mom and I, we rode a Greyhound bus to Florida and... That was a very, um, it was a very long 24 hours. Watching your parent leave a child in such a bad situation and you can't do anything about it. I remember even at 10, I was devastated for her. She was devastated, but she knew the only way to stay alive was to leave and to get on that bus. And at that point, that was probably like the longest 24 hours of my life of going through that with her. After only a brief stay in Florida, Kate and her mother came back home, reuniting with her brother, but also walking right back into the fire. My mom's car was there out front, so I mean, he knew we were there. But he was just, he was on the steps of this converted garage, like standing there, and we were down in the, in the room and just the, the look on his face, it was different. His demeanor was different. And I believe at that moment he already had the gun out. 
So the gun he always carried, the loaded 45 Magnum. And he came down, he stepped down, and I think at that point my mom had fallen back on the couch or chair, and I had fallen back either next to her or near her lap. But he he came towards us with the gun up, and at that point I laid across my mother because, again, in my thoughts, I can protect her, right? Like, he's, he's not going to do anything to me. I do remember him trying to get me off of her at some point, um, hitting me in the side of the arm with the gun, trying to get me to move. Um, and it, it was cocked at this time. I mean, he was, I could see that. I could determine that I had grown up around around guns. I knew what a cocked gun looked like, what a bullet in the chain. You know, I knew what that was. And, um, and he just kept, he just kept waving it and putting it, trying to put it in my mom's face. And, and I would just move with it. I, I, you know, I was, I just, I just couldn't let this happen. Whatever was going to happen, I, I just couldn't let it happen. So at some point I reached up and wrapped my hand around the barrel of the gun and just looked at him. There was something that incited my brother to say, why don't you give me the gun and I'll do it for you? A 12, this 12 year old little boy trying to save his 10 year old sister and his mother, you know, like, and I think at this point, my brother was anything to get the gun out of his hand. That's what he was trying to do. And, you know, this previous few years, he had been the one to talk him down. He had been the one that other people had used. And I think that's kind of what he felt his role as a as a protector, you know, as our brother, as, as trying to help us. So our dad, he, um, he didn't even open the door. He, he just slammed the gun. He punched through the screen door with the loaded gun and gave it to my brother. So at that point, as soon as my brother got the gun, again, we've grown up around guns. He, um, he emptied, he emptied it and he emptied the chamber And at that point, my dad became absolutely furious. So he ripped, he ripped down that screen door and he started picking up all the bullets on the floor and he ripped the gun out of my brother's hand. And then he, um, he pushed him onto the couch and, uh, put his, he had boots on and he, uh, he, I don't know if he kicked him in the chest, but he held him backwards up against the couch with his boot on his chest while he reloaded the gun. And my mom and I are still outside the door, kind of like looking in and again, just pure chaos. And he reloaded the gun and he came outside. And I thought, well, right, this is this is it. This is, this is how we, this is, this is just it. You know, it's just how it's supposed to be. And the next thing I knew, he, he fell to his knees in the mud, begging my mom for forgiveness, begging her to come home. Just, just a complete flip on what, like what had just happened had not happened. And I, I don't know what it was, but he got in his car and he drove away. Unfortunately, my brother um, was never able to fully 
just pull away from our dad. He he always had that desire to want that relationship and to um, to want him to be proud of him. Your brother, he kept coming back into your dad's orbit. He could not. He could not get away. He just absolutely. He just couldn't. He just he couldn't. And he would tell me at times, um, "I'm so proud of you. I'm so proud that you were able to cut off contact." That I feel like that is something. I should do, but there, I just, I can't. Kate was finally able to leave her family, to go to college, marry, and try to start a new adult life, thinking that she had left that family trauma behind. 2006, um, I was, I was 25, and I had, you know, I was, I had a lot going for me. I was getting ready to graduate college. And my husband and I, we had, we, you know, we had this moved into a new house and we were creating our life together. And I remember we were, I can remember this day very vividly. Um, We were preparing, we were, my husband and I were going to go to this museum exhibit on Sunday and, and uh, we were really excited for it. And so we were, we had been up doing stuff on Saturday and we were like, okay, we need to go to bed where, you know, we got to get up early. We need to drive downtown and we're going to go do this and have a really good day together and see this really cool body exhibit. So we go to bed and my cell phone rings. It's about 1 a.m. And I pick up the phone and it's my mom and I just, it's my mom and my sister together. My mom says, your brother just shot your dad, and he's dead. They don't know where he is. Within seconds, I was over the toilet vomiting. I mean, that was my reaction. Um, my dad had still been living in the same house that I had come home to destroyed as a child. Um, after he got out of prison, he had came back and lived there. And... At some point, my brother left, and he walked down the hill to my grandfather's house and gotten, I believe, a 20-gauge shotgun and walked back up. And my dad, he was on the inside. It was a glass screen door because I believe um, my brother was about 12 feet away, and he held the shot. My dad, he was about 12 feet away, and my dad was standing inside the glass door, and my brother shot him with a 20-gauge shotgun. By about 3 a.m., 3, it was 3, 310, um, the local sheriff's department had surrounded the trailer that he was in, and within minutes, he killed himself. Within a couple of days, I just began having um, its flashbacks, very vivid visual flashbacks over and over and over again. And I'm talking hundreds of day, hundreds of times a day. Um, of imagining that. Of imagining my brother um, shooting himself mm-hmm. in the head. Mm-hmm. Of um, And that was that it was and it was fixated on that moment um that I knew nothing about I was not there I you know but that was 
that was what I was fixating on. And that's what I saw every time I closed my eyes, what I thought that it was, you know, or what I thought had happened. Um, and the, the social, the social anxiety, the, um, not, not eating for sure. Um, it just, just a lot of, I, I just had completely changed. I had become a different person. So not just grief. Like it sounds like you were expecting to grieve this and move on, but you're grieving and developing what sounds like severe PTSD. Uh, yes. And at the time, I mean, I knew about PTSD. Um, like I said, I was just getting ready to graduate college and I had actually minored in psychology. So at this point I'm going, okay, I have to take what I've learned and my whole, like everything has changed my whole person, my whole person, you know, I'm, I'm not who I was right before this happened, which is understandable, but it's affecting my everyday life. I can't go outside. I can't go be in public. I don't want to eat. I can't sleep. I, I, I'm having panic attacks. Um, it just, it just had completely consumed me. So even though it seems an important point, even though you had been, in an incredibly abusive, uh, terribly frightening home where you were thinking death was coming for sure. You actually grew up, um, got out of that home, went to high school, college. It sounds like while you may have had some anxiety and depression, you didn't have full-blown PTSD until this happened. I would say that. I, there was definitely, after I was diagnosed uh, with PTSD, after my brother died, I can look, I could look back and see some behaviors and some incidences and some of my reactions from 12 to 25 that were definitely signs of PTSD. So maybe a better description, you were traumatized with post-traumatic symptoms through your childhood, adolescence, early adulthood, but, but you were functioning. I coped. Yeah, you coped. Right. Because I had survived this horrible thing. So I should, you know, it was like the okay, I went through that. This was my childhood. I had gone through that. And it was, you know, you're here, you're alive, you've survived, you made it through that. So these other things are small. So I kind of I was able to cope with them um, and kind of move myself past them on my own. I, I could recognize when things were an issue and work my way through it. But after, um, after my brother died, there was there was no doing it on my own or working my way through it at that mm. point. It was I had gone down yeah. fast. In the months and years after her brother's death, Kate tried to get help, but she found out the hard way that medications rarely do much for PTSD or for the depression that comes out of PTSD. And even talk therapy proved to be a bust as she didn't know what kind of help she needed. Trauma therapy is a distinct specialty, but how could Kate have known that? At that point, they moved me over to um, Zoloft, which is supposed to be safe while you're pregnant. Um, they switched me over to that. And I kind of just went into this mindset of, I have to I have to take care of this baby. I have to protect this baby. I can't, um, whatever's going on with me, whatever's happening to me is second to, is second to this child. And... I also, you know, told myself, you know, your brother, he would not want you, he would want you to put this baby first and to put yourself first and take care of yourself. And, and I kind of, I had kind of had to have that mentality of, 
you have to take care of yourself and you have to take care of this baby. And so coping mechanisms come in once again. I mean, I'm, I can no longer take, take the, I can no longer take the anxiety medication because I'm pregnant. So I'm on the antidepressant and you know, it's, it's this wonderful, joyous thing in your life. You're, you're going to have a baby and it's this, the most amazing thing. So it's like, you have to be happy. You have to feel good. You, you know, and, and I did, I, um, I, I kind of pushed back. I mean, what had happened is a part of me and I was still very sad and it was a very difficult time, but I kind of had to push it to the side a little bit and, focus on take you know having a healthy baby and when could you not push it aside any longer so I would say so I had so I had a baby in um, April of 2007 and then I had another baby in August of 2008 and so he uh, my son was probably a year year and a half old so I would say December 2009 It just wasn't the same anymore. The depression was coming back. So I sought this therapist out that my insurance covered, and I went to see him. And I went, like, twice. It was terrible. So terrible. um, Now I know. I mean, that's not what he – I shouldn't have been seeing someone like him. I mean, he's like a self-help as in – um, business motivation. I mean, it was just a really weird, like why, <laughs> but that was the only therapist offered mm. through my insurance at the time. So at that point, like most people, you didn't know there are many types of therapists or, or modalities of therapy. And you thought, here's a therapist on my panel. I'll go. Yeah. I had but no, I had no clue of completely inappropriate fit. It was definitely an inappropriate, uh, fit. And he he I don't think that he accurately really knew how to to deal with me and I like I said I believe I went like four or five times and I just I stopped going I thought well this guy can't help me there's no help you know and I had already felt like I'm I am so fucked up that there is no help for me how do I how am I going to get out of this because you tried medications from a family practitioner you tried a few sessions with this guy and Nothing's helping. Right. And and to me, in the deep, dark hole is the depression, is I would get so depressed that you just feel worthless and you feel nobody, nobody can come from this. Nobody can rise above this and heal, right? Like, how, how can you? How can, you know, how can, how can somebody go through all of these things and be okay? I, I just had kind of resolved myself to this is my life this is what it is and um it's it's just going to be painful so i started having nightmares about well i remember having them as early as four to five and they had increased over the years and increased and increased. And it was always, you know, somebody chasing me, somebody holding me down and shooting me. Um, and a lot of these were before my brother died. So after, after he died, they intensified as well, which made the sleep very difficult because every time I closed my eyes, I had flashbacks. And so it was just this 
ongoing battle of no sleep, um, no energy, no, um, just no desire to, to get up out of bed other than when I had to, I mean, I had two babies. There was things I had to do. There were many times that I just wanted to walk away because I thought I am fucking everybody up. Like I am screwing their lives up. This, I, I'm not going to get better. This is who I am and they deserve better. And it was more of a, for me, it was in my thoughts more of walking away because suicide was never a thought for me after what, after what I experienced with my brother um, and being victimized by that. Um, I just, it was, it was never, it was never an option. Um, but I, many times I felt like my husband and children would be better off if I just walked away and just disappeared. Thankfully, he reached out to, to this therapist and scheduled an appointment. I show up the first day and I'm like, I don't want to be there because I'm going to have to tell all this horrible shit that I've been through and there's nothing that's going to fix me. I'm still going to be fucked up. I'm, I'm not, I mean, <laughs> nothing else has helped me because they talk about all the wonders that, you know, the, you know, nothing had helped me that I had tried and I hadn't, I haven't tried a lot, had not tried a lot at that point. But I had little knowledge of what my options, you know, were. And um, I was like, there's this talk therapy. I'm just, that's, that's not going to do anything for me, right? So I've been there. And I remember being in there with her the first time. And she starts, you know, the beginning, the whole, you have to kind of explain why you're so messed up, right? And what's going on. She kind of briefly explained about you know, activating right brain, left brain, so that you can heal your brain properly. And really, when you look back at these times, um, you look at them differently, or you feel them differently. That's the goal of the EMDR. And there's several different options that she offered me. There's one where um, the therapist, I think, will move their finger back and forth in front to make you follow it. Um, and then there's one where you hold on to these little handheld, they look like little earbuds and you just put one in each hand and they vibrate from side to side from one, you know, left hand, right hand, back and forth. And I said, you know, I think that's what I would be more comfortable with. That, that sounds like, that sounds like that would work for me. And I'm a very hands-on person. So that, you know, that was like, great. Like I can actually feel something the first session, I don't know if we actually did any EMDR other than me holding the buzzers and her turning them on and kind of just like explaining, you know, the process and kind of getting to know me and, and probably, you know, wanting to make sure that I was ready for the EMDR, you know, her getting to know me. Um, so... That was that was the beginning of my journey for EMDR, and I kind of I stepped into it, knowing nothing and having to just put my trust in a stranger, because if I didn't, 
there was there was nothing there was nothing left for mm-hmm. me. I mean, this this was my chance. Mm-hmm. Typically in EMDR, the client tells his or her trauma story or stories over and over and over. And did you start with the loss of your brother or did she take you back to earlier childhood traumas to begin? So we we actually started with early childhood traumas that did not involve domestic violence. Um, we I have a a big fear of snakes. I was bit by a snake when I was little and spent a week in the hospital and I just have always had a big fear. So we started with that because I was very cautious and very scared to start with the big stuff. Um, because that means I have to relive it. I have to, I have to put it out there. And honestly, while I was ready to get help, I wasn't ready to face the hard, hard parts yet. I knew that there was other healing that had to take place first. Um, and again, I wasn't, I wasn't ready. We, we didn't get to my brother's death probably until year four to five. Um, wait, year four to five. Yes. So four years of doing four years of doing, and and when I talk about his death, I meant the incident of that Mm -hmm. night of what I, what I described of what happened. There was other things and bits and pieces, but I I wasn't ready, mm-hmm. and it was very painful, and I had realized through my journey with her that there was a lot of other things that played a factor in the PTSD, the depression, the anxiety, you know, what I had experienced as a child. It wasn't just that one incident. Mm-hmm. Um, Did you start to get some early relief? with the EMDR, even with doing snake EMDR, that, cause I'm, I'm wondering if you stuck in there for four years before you even started working on the trauma with your brother, I'm guessing that there must've been some signs that it was helping. It well, like I said, there was some bits and pieces. It was really that night and it was the, their deaths that took a while to get to. Um, so it sounds like she was titrating the trauma exposure, starting with traumas that were manageable. I mean, you had desperate fear of snakes, but you started with that, which maybe just gives us a sense how bad, if you start with snakes, <laughs> that's your the least of your traumas, um, and then move up from there. It was a, sort of a graduated exposure. While the buzzers were going, there was no talking. There, um, we would stop every 60 seconds or so. And I think she could tell too with my breathing when things were, there was definite times that she would stop and then, um, earlier go keep going through. Um, but yeah, there was no talking while the buzzers were on. And, and, uh, for me it was keep, I, it was better for me to have my eyes closed. I could follow that. And it, it just depends on what you could start with one thing but something else could always pop up in your brain or in your mind. And um, that 
that's that was the healing part is what's coming up and really your your brain trying to connect and figure out how to help you how to help you heal Mm -hmm. i guess or how to and with the number rating you're actually getting sort of here and now evidence that your emotional intensity is dialing down because if she brings up a memory that you last talked about a month ago and it was eight nine and now it's down to five six you know you're getting better definitely um it i mean i think it took probably a year um it was when i really was noticing or, or feeling good you know i felt i felt i didn't always i didn't always feel good going to the sessions so um i feel like that first year was a good trial and error of her you know her getting to know me and me getting to know her and um, me getting to know myself in therapy, you know, this this is a little bit of a different person than I've been before. Um, so the first year is really just preparatory introduction. I, for me, it was. Mm-hmm. And how many sessions was that roughly? The first year, I probably went. I started out going every two weeks, and then broke down to once a month. Um, at this point, when we found her. She was not on my insurance, so I had to pay out of pocket. And that was a little bit difficult, um, paying out of pocket for each session. And um, so I had to be conscious about how many times I could go. I just can't go once a week, you know, and 100 and whatever dollars it was out of pocket. I have two babies. I'm a stay-at-home mom. And it it's just not always there. And it was also difficult mentally for me probably the first couple of years there was definitely um times that I was late but I'd still show up and she'd you know she would remind me we only have this much time and I'm like that's fine but sometimes it was all I could do to get myself there many times I didn't want to go because who wants to relive those traumatic memories? I know deep down that this this is what's going to help me. But then you doubt, of course, throughout, is it really going to help you? Mm-hmm. Are you really going to get better? Are you really going to feel like, are you going to feel different? How long do you think it was before you had a notable increase in functioning? So... Are we talking a year, two, three years? Because you said when you came, finally came to do the EMDR therapy, you couldn't sleep. You were racked with nightmares and flashbacks and fear and panic and hopelessness and depression and you're on meds and you're miserable and hopeless and wishing you could just walk away and not come back. But how long did it take until you not just felt better, but were functioning better? Maybe that your husband and others around you could see Oh, yeah, you, you are better. I would say probably year three. But year three to four was when the nightmares just went away. And that was a huge turning point for me because I, I was no longer fearful of sleep. And um, so, yeah, year three was definitely, um, I think, a big... A big turn, a big change for me. That was when I felt like, wow, 
what I am doing is working. Mm-hmm. Were there other markers like that in year four or five? And you did six years, is that right? I did six years. Yeah. In, the, in the subsequent years, were there other markers? like Because that is a profound marker that now you don't have nightmares and you can sleep. Were there any other markers like that? Uh, well, you know, the first uh, year one and two is when the heavy depression lifted. So that was that was a big thing for me was um, that deep, dark hole. So after probably year two and three in treatment, the deep, dark hole started disappearing. It started shortening. It would, um, and for now, so I did over six years and probably about year five, I... The depression would st- the depression still comes back, but it's very short. I'm very aware when it happens. I recognize that it's happening. I let my body feel it. I tell myself, this is just a moment. This isn't your life. This is just, you know, this is just a moment in time. If it's one day or two days, three days, you're going to feel bad. Then feel it, notice it but it doesn't define who you are. This doesn't define your treatment. So so my, my depressive episodes are very few and short and far between. Mm-hmm. And what um, about your former PTSD symptoms like flashbacks or fear, doom, dread? Um... Only when I have triggers. So I still have quite a few triggers, and I've really gotten pretty good about eliminating those triggers um previously i've loved love true like crime shows true crime any kind of stuff like that even as a child that was you know i read the books and i and i realized that i that's one thing i should probably try to eliminate is seeing violent shootings and violent you know the violence in there and um eliminating that trigger was helpful um and of course there's some out there that you can't eliminate I mean, i'm definitely triggered by guns um and i think my reaction is less now than it would have been pre-emdr it, it was a long journey it was a difficult journey and i think had i not stuck with it i would not be where i am today it was it took, I mean, it took a lot of time. It, it took six years of my life, but six years in comparison to living the rest of your life partially healed and able to move forward um, and able to bring yourself out of these deep, you know, not let your, or not let yourself fall into the deep, dark hole. Um it, it's just sticking with it. And I have friends that I tell that to now, that you have to stick with it. You have to do it. You have to put in the work. If you don't put in the work, you're not going to see the rewards. And if you don't put in the work, you don't know what, you don't know what you're capable of or where you can go. Why did EMDR work for both Sophie and Kate? In contrast with psychotherapy or talk therapy, EMDR is a type of somatic or body therapy. It meets trauma where it lies, deep in the body 
and in the recesses of the brain. In future episodes, we plan to look into other modalities to treat trauma, including some of the newer on-the-horizon psychedelic treatments. But for now, 2019, EMDR is as good as we've got, and it seems pretty darn effective for many people. If you like this episode, please share it with anyone else who might find hope or meaning in this story. Check out our website, bftapodcast.com, where you can learn more about us and this project, get more information on the treatments mentioned in the stories, as well as additional resources and music credits. You can also email us with comments or story requests. If you have time, please rate us on iTunes, as this helps us spread these stories far and wide. Much gratitude to my good friend Chris Johnson, who does our sound, and thank you for listening to Back from the Abyss. May each of you find the strength and support to find your way through the darkness. <laughs>